Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Pat Armistead. Pat Armistead has worked for 40 years in leadership, training, and development roles. She had 16 years in nurse education and is a director of nursing services before founding her own advertising agency, Take One Productions. This business won 11 NSW Advertising Awards, one national and one international. She has won the NSW Northwards Tourism Award Media Section and an award for Cacharel in Paris. Sorry. Throughout this period, she served on a number of hospital and business boards as chair or president. She was president of the National Speakers Association. New Zealand 2001, the most awarded speaker at the 2000 um, NSANZ convention and 2002 New Zealand Speaker of the Year. She has convened two international co conventions for the National Speakers Association of New Zealand and has toured internationally with Dr. Patch Adams. She has been a professional speaker for 20 years and is a published author. She has presented over 1,000 keynotes into the business and health sector. A series of losses is a lead up to 2001 led her to declaring herself to be the world's first joyologist. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Oh, thank you so much. It really is a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Yes, and um, so happy to be able to talk to people across the world, it's just wonderful what we have, all this technology. Yeah. So, so excited to hear your story. So why don't you introduce yourself, let us know where you started out, where, you know, how you got to where you are today. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm an Australian, born in New South Wales, in Australia, in a, a rural town. And um, yeah, I had a, a pretty, I think ordinary um, upbringing. We had have two other sisters, um, wonderful parents. Uh, my father was a carpenter. We had a, a Labrador, a black Labrador dog. And uh, I remember playing in the backyard with that dog with my dress up box, <laughs> uh, putting the dog in pram and taking it for a walk. Um, and, you know, in my years at high school, I explored art and art and creative expression was uh, very big for me through that period. Um, I excelled at dressmaking at school and art, not so much maths, <laughs> not good there. Um, and at the end of that time frame when I was heading up to leaving school, I wanted to go to art school. I just so wanted to continue to explore that. And my mother said to me, well, you know, your art's wonderful and your father frames everything, but um, I really think you should get a proper job. So I didn't, if I wasn't going to pursue that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I worked in a shoe shop for a year, <laughs> uh, bought more shoes than I could ever possibly hope to wear out. <laughs> and, and um, at the end of that time, some friends were talking to me and they had gone nursing and I'd never considered um, nursing, uh, but I went and tried it over a Christmas period just as an assistant and loved it. 
So I became, I did my nurse aide training first, which is just a 12 month program over here. And then decided, yeah, I'm going to um, do my full general nurse training, which I began in 1970. Mm. And um, in a um, outer suburbs of Sydney hospital, um, yeah, pretty incredible um, learning and went on to, I became a charge sister very quickly after registering and then went on and um, developed more skills, did some more training, did my dip ed nursing uh, and became a nurse educator. And then after 10 years, um, a position came up to manage a uh, private hospital and I took that role. So I was only 30 when I took that role on. So wow, that's amazing. Uh, pretty young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty young. Yeah. So, yeah, the, and the, um, you know, I didn't do anything creative all those years I was nursing. However, I really did, when I look back now, I, I see how I was able to bring my innate capacity to be good humoured. Mm -hmm. um, and I see, I didn't know it then because I wasn't conscious of it, but um, I really learned about commitment and responsibility. Um, you can't not have those qualities if you're going to work as a nurse. <clears throat> and um, it stood me in really good stead, even through to now. Um, everywhere I've been, most of my life um i've always been 20 minutes half an hour early even today i was ready 20 minutes half an hour before and that's just ingrained from those days uh if we were going to cope with the forthcoming shift you need to get there early get sorted get your list made of what you're going to do in what kind of sequence mm -hmm. so that you were were ready to go as soon as, as soon as the time kicked in mm. Yeah, and that's important. And I know that that's not my personality. I'm like, get everything prepared just in time. And there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have to factor that in because I know everyone's not like me. And I've had clients over the years, more recent years, and um, they don't have the kind of same time time urgency. <laughs> so I need to factor that in. Otherwise, um, you know, I'm going to be towy. <laughs> so I just need to accommodate that. Uh -huh. yeah. So how did you get from nursing to what you're doing now? The uh, Well, I nursed for 16 years all up. Mm -hmm. um, six years in that private hospital facility really was very taxing. Mm -hmm. um, Nursing is a big demand mentally, physically, and emotionally. Mm -hmm. And after 16 years, I was just done, really. Uh, my first marriage had broken up, and um, I stayed in the role for a couple of years, but it, I had a young child, and um, oh, I, I don't think I was physically... like I wasn't really adrenal burnout, but I certainly was... Um, knew I needed to step away from it, and so I did. I went on a five-year working holiday around Australia, doing many and varied things, um, most extraordinary time. I think I probably had 
those five years were probably the best quality life that I've had before or since uh, in terms of living at one with nature, um, just allowing things to happen. Like We were never without work. It astounds me even now. We just kind of rang ahead and found out what work was happening and we'd just arrive and take it and uh-huh. off we'd go. Um, I homeschooled my son. Um, I was thinking when I sent through my details, I should have included, I don't know if you know what a wombat is, but I reared a wombat uh-huh. <laughs> over that five-year period. Um, managed a wildlife sanctuary, worked on a television show, The Flying Doctors, doing um, continuity and special effects makeup. Um, So many and varied things. And at the end of that time, my son was reaching high school age and I just thought, oh, we've got to come back to the other world, Mm -hmm. um, the real world, (laughs) Um, and let him go through high school and, um, you know, achieve there. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I worked for a year in a childcare centre while I was thinking (laughs) as the um, nurse Mm -hmm. and um, knew that wasn't where I needed to be. And my partner was an electronics technician. So long story, but we ended up um, setting up a company where we just transferred film and slides to video. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, it just grew. We started doing weddings and special events. And um, our skills got good enough. We started creating television commercials and then got um, contracts with the local news, 2020, 60 Minutes, to be just working as freelancers, um, providing regional items for their programs. Wow, that sounds so, like a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, that, was, that, was, that too was amazing. 11 years there. Um, huge growth curve and, and I really get now that was my that was my creative degree happening you know that was my arts degree mm-hmm. because I was able to explore so many facets of the art world not painting necessarily but um, certainly all of the you know sound and visuals and graphic design many aspects <clears throat> um, and that took me through to just before 2020, no, no, the year 2000, yeah, about 1998. Yes, mm. and we had had a conversation, a wonderful conversation earlier on, and uh, that year 2000 was a huge year for you. Yes, yes. I um. We had been doing well in the production company and um, in, I think it was 1998, there was a bit of a downturn in the economy, not huge, but significant. And in the town I was in, um, 17 small businesses closed their shops in the main street and things were really tight. Uh, People weren't advertising, so that affected our business incredibly. Um, We did a few shared projects that kind of saw us over that hump. Um, but my partner was from New Zealand and he wanted to go home. He'd been here 20 years. <clears throat> and so I finally agreed <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that we would go there for a time. 
And um, over there was like a four-year period of transition. And in that time, um, my merit of what had been going on, I lost my home and business twice, relocated to New Zealand. Um, at that time, we owed $80,000, which um, I chose not to go bankrupt. We could have declared that. Instead, um, I just made an agreement and we paid that off over the next two years. Uh, there's a book in that because <laughs> if people could save $40,000 a year at the moment, uh, I think that'd be a good thing. Mm. <clears throat> um, I had cancer. My family hadn't spoken since 1989, uh, which was one reason I kind of relented about going to New Zealand. <clears throat> And then when I arrived in New Zealand, I had, in the first 18 months, I had 10 car accidents. And I think I said to you, none were my fault, honest. <laughs> uh, nine times somebody somebody hit me. Just unbelievable, really. <laughs> yeah. When I think back, I can hardly believe it myself. Um, but, yeah, about every six weeks, somebody ran up the back of me at a stop sign and then the last accident, somebody hit me. I got collected in a roundabout. So I think I was going through, um, I do think karma happens. I don't know how I attracted that though. So I was having some crash karma. <laughs> yes, definitely some crash karma. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one, one of the gems that came from that A1 auto wreckers in Auckland um, became very good friend after about the third accident he would send the tow truck for the car and he personally would come and collect me and take me to wherever i went wherever i needed to go wow um and he said to me he said pat my accountant said to me years ago i'll worry about the money you get out there and look after your customers do what no one else does mm -hmm and watch your business grow. And he said, so that's what I do. Mm. And um, we became very good friends. I actually gave him, <laughs> after the 10th accident, uh, I had created this um, huge um, award <laughs> for service. <laughs> um, yeah. And then at the height of all of that, my... Um, partner of 20 years, found another woman and left. And that was the, all of the other things I had coped with one way or another, I was able to just, you know, talk to the bank. This is what I want to do. How do we arrange it? Um, you know, I had gone to and sorted and organized and done what I needed to do in order to uh, achieve. Um, but my partner leaving, was devastating because I just never dreamed that was going to be our um, our conclusion. <clears throat> um, so I plummeted. And a significant point around there was he, his parting words to me the last day we separated out of the house was, no, I don't love you and I never loved you. That's and cool. in that moment, I thought... If that's true, then everything I've ever known is not true. And I disintegrated. 
uh, and the uh, my doctor wanted to medicate me, and I kept saying to her over two or three visits, "No, <laughs> help me deal with my grief." You know, I have every reason to be feeling as I feel. Help me, help me move through this. And she wasn't equipped to um, to guide me in that way. And so I found another GP who was a had a very integrated approach to medicine. Um, he was beautiful, actually, Dr. Robin Kelly. <clears throat> in my first visit with him, which was 90 minutes, um, at the end of that time, he got his guitar out and sang me a song. Oh, and it was beautiful. a song about his son <laughs> who um, arrived later in their marriage and um, that song about Toby, yeah. keep him wise, keep him strong. Teach him right, teach him wrong. Um, so um, he, he was a very bar, a balm for me at that point. <clears throat> and um, from there, I ended up, um, I went to a grieving seminar that was held at Starship Hospital in Auckland. Um, Starship is the children's hospital, uh, amazing facility for the country. Um, a model, a real model of, of care. Um, and there were 400 parents at that seminar who had lost or were losing children. So pretty amazing, not in a good way really, to um, be sitting amongst that. Uh, and the person who was presenting to them was a, a doctor from America who had worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, whom you would know, I'm sure. Um, and he was there for giving a um, two-hour seminar. And the main aim was to be supporting these people to be creating their own circles once they left the embrace of the hospital. Um, the hospital had huge network that let people come from around the country and there were facilities for parents to stay, etc. Um, but there was nothing in the like external outreach. So enabling them to set up their own support networks once they moved away from the embrace. And on the same, well, a couple two things happened. I sat next to a couple that day who were we were talking about aha moments and they changed my life. They were sitting on my left-hand side and uh, as the seminar's proceeding, I'm really conscious of their energy. She just sat bolt upright, looking straight ahead, impassive, um, very in my world, looking disconnected. He, on the other hand, was distressed. Um, he would wring his hands, hold himself. Um, he rocked backwards and forwards a lot. And I was really conscious. I could see um, his jaw clenching and unclenching. Periodically, tears would come to his eyes. And I had all those years of nursing and I felt that man's pain like I'd felt no one else's pain ever before. 
there was it was as if it was as if it were mine you know and yes we were close and there was all this other other pain and grief in the room but wow this was an extraordinary moment and when the um presenter had finished he went outside and so i followed him <laughs> uh, i just felt compelled to do so i'm that kind of girl you see <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i approached him and i said you know may i talk to you i said you've clearly had a loss fairly recent you know do you like would you like to talk and so he shared with me and his son had fallen to his death in the IMAX cinema in Auckland around about a year before. And he um, died as a result of that fall, just an accident, but toppled over backwards off a balcony, several floors up inside the building um, and died as a result. So he was 14. And he said, you can see my wife. She's just been like that for a year. He said, we've got two other children. I'm a bloke. He said, I can barely look after myself, let alone, I don't know how to reach my wife anymore. I've had to help the other children uh, manage and cope. And then there's life and work. Um, yeah, just a nightmare journey. So we had, at the end of that conversation, we had a great big hug. Mm -hmm. um, and when I went home, well, several things. Um, went back in and the uh, person who was delivering uh, was walking backwards and forwards uh, across the front row talking to parents, and he was asking them, um, what was your child's name or what is your child's name? Mm -hmm. Now, some 43 years ago, I lost my first child, full term, but stillborn, uh, complicated um, delivery. And um, she was buried as baby Armistead because that's what they did back then. And I just followed suit. Mm -hmm. um, and it had never bothered me. <clears throat> but as he's walking across and talking to these people, I just thought, oh, my God, I never gave her a name. And another friend who was with me, a, a marriage celebrant, she said to me afterwards, oh, Pat, she said, that's all right. She said, we can have a ceremony now. And so we had a naming ceremony and I called her Willow. Mm -hmm. um, very restorative process and so I'm really mindful now we can heal retrospectively mm, right yeah. some wounds are big and we'll carry that wound most of our lives it may not necessarily be a huge gaping wound mm -hmm. with passage of time but there will be in my experience there's been moments come up where you can do more healing that creates a clearer space for you then to elevate and transform in your own life. So an ongoing commitment to healing your own past and knowing, knowing where your life wounds are and knowing you can do something now. 
um, to to heal that and have a um, a more calm um, and centered experience around the loss um, in this present moment. So, and on the same night as that ceremony, uh, the grieving ceremony or conference, um, I spoke to a magician back over here in Australia who was inter introducing me to laughter yoga. Um, you might know about that, the fun you're having when you're not really having fun. <laughs> um, and he knew about me through the National Speakers Association. We both belonged in different countries. And he was inviting me to bring them over to New Zealand. So I thought, well, that's just incredible. So about four hours after this grieving seminar, I'm talking to this magician in South Australia. And it was in the middle of that conversation with him mm -hmm. that... Um, the joyologist was born. Um, we had been, he'd been telling me about laughter yoga, which I didn't know very much about. And I'm laughing my head off. And while that was happening, I'm, I was just aware of the paradox. I have just left a few hours back that room and, you know, such grief and anguish. And now I'm over here in a totally different place, laughing my head off, and this man's not even telling me any jokes. <laughs> um, well, how is he getting you to laugh? <laughs> well, it's, this is, see, even we here now, uh, although it's not a funny thing per se, um, I think it's part of our capacity to be genial mm -hmm. and our humanity that... Um, when we're connected, when we're aligned, there's, um, it's part of our human expression, you know? So he was telling me how the phenomena works, how the training works. And of course, it's pretend laughter. You teach people laughter exercises and they end up laughing for real. <laughs> Probably no surprises there. That sounds like I'm going to have to try that. I have never tried that. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I highly recommend the, um, I think it will be a boon for mental health facilities, aged care facilities, um, groups and businesses. Now it was created by Dr. Madan Kataria, an Indian doctor back in 1995. He had been uh, helping some of his patients with, different yoga therapies and he invented these yoga laughter exercises went out and did them in the main street and involved passerbys in <laughs> participating and now there's gosh maybe 10,000 laughter clubs around the world where people meet once a week typically and laugh for an hour that sounds like so much fun. And I know if you get into a group where someone starts laughing and then the second person starts laughing and then the third person, all of a sudden everyone's laughing. And then if someone walks into the room, they start laughing too. They don't even know why they're laughing, but the more people you get laughing, the longer it lasts and the more intense it gets. And people yeah. will just be, their sides are splitting because they're laughing so hard. 
how does that work? <laughs> I don't yes. know how that works, but it does. <laughs> Yeah. So with with laughter yoga, what happens is you know the um, like one one of the very basic little exercises that is used to kind of go between different activities is you just go ho ho ha ha ha, and then you clap hands to go along with that. So that's uh, energizing the energizing the energy of the heart chakra, mm-hmm. um, and and then you know different activities. Um, oh, it's not a big part of my work now, but I always provide an example. So I sometimes do what I call hospital laughter. So people are in pairs; they have to pretend they've got a stethoscope. Uh-huh. They take the um, piece and put it on their partner's chest, and then they tilt their head because they're listening intently. They've got the earbuds in, and they go. Ho, ho, lub, dub, dub, right? So listening uh-huh. to the heart. <laughs> and there's there's something about, so you're tapping into the inner child uh-huh. and you're playing. Yes. <laughs> and you're doing this pretend laughter thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, research over the this last 25 years has shown the brain doesn't know the difference. The brain thinks, Oh, right, they're over there having a good time. Right, let's go. <laughs> and you start laughing. Um, I did a pilot program. After that conversation with um, with um, the magician, mm-hmm. um, it was actually in the middle of that conversation with him that the joyologist was born. Um, it was just this lull in between us laughing our heads off. And I thought, oh, my God, we've got radiology, pathology, hematology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. (laughs) There it was. So that's where it was born. (laughs) (laughs) Joyologist. Makes sense. (laughs) Well, after a while it did. (laughs) So in the beginning, I didn't know where that was going to go. Um, I came across to Australia, did the training, returned home, and a friend had two uh, nursing homes, rest homes, and I thought, all right, let's get clever. Um, So I asked her, could I do a pilot? And so I did a three-month pilot Mm -hmm. in one of those facilities with 29 residents, and we did this um, half an hour a day yogic laughter workout. And at the end of that period, accredited that facility as being the first laughter accredited facility in New Zealand. (laughs) They went on to achieve a world record in the Guinness Book of Records for laughing continuously for one hour. I didn't want anyone to um, expire as a result of that effort. So we did that in rounders. You know how you do one and then the next one. And what happened over that three months? It wasn't a clinical trial. I wish I'd had thought about it at the time, but um, residents in those facilities often quickly become passive recipients of whatever you want to do, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's really hard for staff to lift the energy and keep 
the energy up. That's just a big drain. <clears throat> and what these laughter exercises did was reawaken them. So they'd be walking up the corridor in their, on, on their walking trains mm -hmm. and they'd be ho, ho to each other as they passed in the corridor. Um, and they started playing tricks and pranks on each other. They'd go to the laundry <laughs> and pick up someone else's laundry. And when they'd go to lunch, they'd get, uh, you know, a big pair of, you know, the big old ladies' underwear out of their little basket on their trolley and hold it up in the dining room and say, who's are these? Oh, no. um, <laughs> nonsense, things like that. And they started making fun of their infirmity. Mm -hmm. And I really just got, if um, at the end of that three-month period, if I go away, is that going to fade down again? You know, because there'll be no designated person to pick that up and, and run with it. So I asked the owner, could I do another pilot? And in this pilot, I assessed the staff and the residents using Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence. Uh -huh. And then I created an activities program delivering into all of those intelligences. And that was a 12-month program. And I believe over that time frame, I probably created the most extensive and varied activities program in aged care. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly in New Zealand, and I don't know about anywhere else, I don't know about making that claim. <clears throat> and over that 15-month period, Four of those 29 residents came off long-term antidepressant therapy and mood was elevated and sustained. And I visited there for a few years um, post those events and was sustained over time because um, there was a lot, of, a lot of staff were the same. So there was, there was a general energy that was sustainable and even if they didn't necessarily have the yoga laughter as regularly anymore they still did silly things they were much more playful mm -hmm. that sounds yeah, wonderful much more playful wonderful yeah. because sometimes you walk into like assisted living or you know a nursing home and it seems so sad you know it seems like people are really bored <laughs> i think they must be bored yeah. just sitting there so that sounds wonderful to keep them just up and up, you know, emotionally, but I mean, up and moving and doing things and laughing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, at the end of that, getting towards the end of that first one that I did, um, there were two ladies, Joan and Christina, and they would be up early waiting at the door for me to arrive. Um, they were both a bit deaf. So deaf people tend to talk loudly <laughs> and I could hear them as I'd be coming towards the door and one would be saying to the other, oh, I wonder what she'll have on today. I wonder if she'll have a hat. I wonder if she'll bring her kite. I had this little miniature kite uh -huh. and I used to run around the dining room <laughs> fly, flying my kite. <clears throat> um I played noughts and crosses with them on their serviettes, mm -hmm. um, breaking some little rules. 
And, you know, it's, it's like you and I can sometimes need a pat and interrupt. Yeah. So that's what we were creating, mm-hmm. interrupting that pattern and lifting spirits. And, you know, the Norman Cussens, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he was a journalist, health journalist, gosh, many years ago. And he developed a condition called ankylosing spondylitis. And he healed himself with large doses of vitamin C and humour. Right? He just watched comedy, humorous stuff over a period of time and healed himself. And he did that twice, actually, over an extended period. So he was the first person to kind of introduce the idea of, we need more of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And how can he that in 1995, Madame Kataria invents this? And who knew we'd be coming through the difficulties of this last 20 years? Yeah, so now you had the opportunity to travel with, uh, you know, Patch Adams, the famous doctor who did very untraditional treatments with people. So do you want to talk about that? Tell us some of your adventures. Uh, And um, this little boy had a bilateral hair lip and a cleft palate. So multiple, multiple problems with his mouth. And he had two American nurses who were specialing him and they were there for a six-month sabbatical um, and would ultimately go home. And my friend said to me, she said, when those nurses went home, his life would revert to whatever it was before and he was pretty malnourished. Um, And it just broke my heart because I knew here in Australia, any child who had that condition would have the surgical repairs done and they would be perfectly fine, certainly by the time they reached five Mm -hmm. and would have a normal or near normal appearance and be able to eat and drink um, well. And so I found Patch's number and I rang him. (laughs) And um, in the conversation, I remembered every word of it. Patch said to me, well, because I was asking about going with him on his next tour. He does the tour um, from the 1st to the 16th of November every year, and it's probably probably this year would be the 33rd year that he's been doing that, going to Moscow and St Petersburg with a troop of clowns visiting orphanages. So I'm on the phone, finally got onto Patch, and he says, Pat, don't come because of me. Come because you want to find and spend your clown self. Come because you'd like to experience for yourself the true disparity between rich and poor. Come because you would like to meet at least one Russian friend. Uh, Come because you would like to find and spend your clown self. And so So I began a journey to prepare for that. And um, that tour in 2004, uh, 16 days. And 16 days 
of being totally present. Everywhere we went, um, like we're all in clown persona, we all had a bubble machine, so bubbles everywhere, everywhere we went. Um, some people could do tricks and things, but most not. And it wasn't about doing the tricks. It was about, we were compassionate clowning. So it's about being able to go to the bedside or sit with somebody and make something happen. Just create, just really work in the moment. <clears throat> so we all, there were 36 of us, all of us had very profound experiences, a very sad, glad trip. Mm -hmm. uh, these children live in very impoverished conditions, um, very often padded earth floors, very old buildings, often barbed wire fences with rolled barbed wire at the top, surrounding. Often they don't get out to see any sunshine. They're not funded. So it's all just managed the best people can do. Um, none of these facilities had toilet paper, soap, hand towels, often no light bulbs. And, um, and we'd arrive. So we'd get off the bus. Every we had one girl had a uh, squeeze box, piano, accordion. She only knew one song that we all knew. That was "You Are My Sunshine." Mm -hmm. The bubble machines would be turned on, and we would just walk towards these facilities. And each year they wait. These children wait for for Patch to come. Still, I still, all these years later, um, can connect to the despair, you know. they We would create murals. 36 of us might create a mural on a wall and a lot of the facility managers would say to us, tomorrow they will paint over that. So they would wipe out what we'd left. So their, their experience of life was, um, you know, just the, <laughs> totally different to any of ours who were on the trip. <clears throat> and so we would arrive and we would bring some joy where clearly there was not much, not by our standards anyway. Um, and there were a couple of experiences um, in Sajiev Posad, the deaf, dumb and blind school in Moscow, a little girl in a blue velvet dress came forward and put her hand out as I came in the door. So we would just allow things to unfold. We didn't orchestrate anything. So this little poppet, who's perhaps eight or nine, took me into a side room, pulls me down onto the floor and starts playing, stands beside me, starts playing with my earrings on my left ear. And in that moment, I knew I, there was just this sense of something profound is about to happen. And I was just filled with joy, just goosebump stuff, right, flowing up. And it's quiet and I'm just waiting. And I don't know how long passed, maybe, maybe a minute. And this little poppet started to hum. She's still hanging on to my earrings. 
And as she started to hum, I could tell by the tonal quality of her voice, she's deaf. So she's humming and then she stopped. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, okay, it's my turn. So I hummed mm -hmm. and she's still hanging on to my earrings. And she hummed and I hummed for an hour wow. until they called me, we've got to go, Pat, we've got to get on the bus. And in that hour, right, she's hanging on to my earrings and I realised now she's picking up my vibration, mm -hmm. uh, which I didn't realise at the outset. And I was totally present to that little girl all that time. There was not one stray thought. In an hour, not one stray thought. I didn't think, oh, I wonder what vodka I'll try tonight um, or anything else. There was just her and I in this profound, intimate communion. Beautiful. That's only ever happened to me once for that extended period of time. And... Um, it just awakened me to maybe we can't recreate that experience for an hour every time. But I was part of the Centre for Compassion in Healthcare in New Zealand and we advocated for all healthcare practitioners. Maybe for the first 60 seconds, you can commit that you'll be present to whoever it is that you're with. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is a beautiful thought. Yeah. Just, you know, and what might that create? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what it takes. Seen. People want to be acknowledged and seen. Yeah. Um, on, on another day, I walked past a room in another facility. This place had 400 children under five with cerebral palsy, all orphans. And Patch was in a room and he said, come and commune with me, Pat. So I went and sat with him on the floor. And he's nursing a child who's perhaps about two. And Patch is really tall, six foot eight, really long arms. Mm -hmm. He's got his nursing this child with her little head in his hands and her little legs up against his chest. And she's crying. Uh, and little limbs all tight as children with cerebral palsy are. And he's humming and rocking and he's singing to her and he's just crooning away and he's making it up. It's all the old Matt Munro and Dean Martin songs. Uh -huh. And she's crying and he's singing. And as this little poppet in front of our very eyes starts to relax and settle down, tears start to come down Patch's cheeks and mine. And he continued to sing and rock. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen this before, but that, that little girl just went totally limp, wow. totally limp in his arms. Her body was totally relaxed. And by now, and he's still singing, but by now he's sobbing and singing and he's sobbing so badly, snot is coming out his nose. And in that moment, I just got, I have never sat with a man 
who will show me that level of expression. Yeah. Uh, and I, um, I, I just became affirmed in everything I can possibly do now with joyology when I come home. Mm. When I come back, I can step out in power because <clears throat> it wasn't so much about the clowning, it was about the connection. Yeah. And the, comp that compassionate connection and the healing that can happen. Mm. We saw lots of little miracles like that. Did she still have cerebral palsy? Sure. But there was that window mm -hmm. where her little body, through, you know, loving care, song and connection, relaxed into a place that she wouldn't have experienced before. Oh, yeah. And there were 36 of us doing, you know, some variation of that. Uh, we'd get back on the bus sometimes and some would have had a, a really beautiful experience, other would have had a really sad experience. Um, and we laughed and cried a lot. Um, over, over any one day, we were fully self-expressed. Um, just time and time again, um, Pat, you know, there are rich and poor in Russia and we'd walk the streets and you can imagine 36 clowns <laughs> um, and you have these very, uh, very well-dressed businessmen and women in beautiful coats. You know these coats have cost a lot of money walking towards you um, and then there's a beggar on the street with, you know, barely enough clothing to keep warm. Uh, I remember one in particular, a man with no limbs. And what I learnt and got permission, permission, well, I learnt from Patch to talk to all of them. Mm -hmm. So I don't miss, you know, so, so many of us find it a bit awkward and so we'll cross the street rather than have to make that encounter with someone in um, poverty-stricken circumstances. So we miss nobody. Mm -hmm. hmm? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I just got a real level of comfortable in my skin <laughs> um, and a freedom of expression from the tour. And it wasn't, it was the experience as much as I didn't spend hours of time with Patch personally, but the what he led us into enabled us to all find our own level of expression. Mm -hmm. yeah. And wasn't about a performing clown. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you expressing this joyology now? What are you doing now, now that you're home? <laughs> The, well, I was very unwell, which is what created um, the need for me to come back to Australia. My son and grandson are here, so uh, I'm now recovered. And um, I've been very focused on mental health in the workplace, workplace wellbeing, uh, which includes some aspects of humour, um, generating, generating geniality and goodwill. Uh, enabling people to be having brave conversations 
there is there are so many conversations we find awkward to have and gosh you know now like never before we need to be in that space there's a an are you okay initiative here in australia uh i don't think it's gone much further um so we have an are you okay day but it's a huge mental health support initiative um that's got a, a range of modalities and and it's woken up people to be asking first that question if you ask nothing else ask that mm -hmm. um are you okay are you okay really yeah because often we're polite. Really? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So, and I did a, a big project just recently with 450 business leaders around Australia over a 15 month period. Uh, and listeners are very welcome to uh, get access to the case study. Um, it really heartened me for where business leaders are now and their openness to be having this kind of conversation, the um, appreciation for who their people are as human beings and the need now to be moving forward, catering into that. And they're not particularly skilled there. They're often strategists mm -hmm. and, you know, got a lot of business acumen. People, um, skills have not been a high component, but they're open to it. So these 450 men really just, um, I was just so excited. I was so excited, so heartened to, to see their willingness and readiness to share vulnerably mm -hmm. um, and in the doing so to notice what happened. Every time we're in the room with, you know, 15 or 20 people, um, lives were changed because of that. So I love working at that intersection, right? We get to that awkward moment, the place where you're triggered, there's my moment. Because <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> humour can sometimes bust that pattern and allow you in to have um, a deeper conversation. But also... Um, I pride myself on creating a really high trust environment. Mm -hmm. I learned that in nursing. You know, you go to the bedside and um, you can't wait a couple of days till you build rapport. No. <laughs> you <laughs> you know? have to care of it right then, yes. <laughs> and often had to do, you know, nasty things sometimes. So the, yeah, M moving forward, I really want to... I want to be a voice for all that's joyful about humanity. And there is so much being challenging us at the moment. It's really testing um, our goodwill. Um, the COVID phenomena has brought up the extremes um, of behaviour. And, you know, we're seeing people behaving badly and others really stepping forward and um, so, you know, I want to help people be a model for um, moving forward and lifting, raising, lifting consciousness, mm -hmm. raising consciousness. Beautiful. So if people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? 
Um, well, uh, various places. Perhaps the easiest is my website, which is geology.co.nz. Um, but I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook under my name. And um, yeah, they're probably the main ones. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for all your heart, oh my goodness, heartfelt stories. It just, oh, I, I don't even have words for it. The, the experience and, and how you describe it, it's just wonderful. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure, really a pleasure. Yeah. So I have one last question before we get off. Yes. What's your best advice for listeners to have the most incredible, amazing life? I think um, being in service, you know, the, I forget who, um, was the Dalai Lama, I'm not sure who said this, but if you wish to know peace, provide peace for another. If you wish to know love, provide love for another. If you wish to know security, then provide security for another and we can expand that out. <clears throat> so we don't have to reach a million people in order to make a difference. It's just one. Mm -hmm. I've been talking to a victim of the bushfires here in Australia since the 15th of January and I committed I would be his um, point of certainty in all this uncertainty every day. Mm -hmm. So I phone him every day. We have five, 10, 15 minute conversation. It's not coaching or counseling. It's just connection, how you're doing um, and providing him with, she's going to ring tomorrow mm -hmm. and the next day, you know, and when we look out and there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope, when we don't seem to have a lot of power and control over what happens, one person can be that point of certainty. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>